Let me pray for us. Let's get in the Word. Father God, thank you, uh, Lord, for who you are. And Lord, the way you work this morning, even to see those two young ladies who were baptized this morning, Lord, uh, declaring their allegiance to you. Lord, let it be true of us that we would not, it would not be said that we just hear the word, but that we are people who put it into practice, who are practitioners of the faith, of faith in Jesus Christ. Let that be known, let that be our reputation, that your name be glorified and raised up in our town because of the way that we live. Help us to love each other well and be united as a group. Help us hear from your word today and respond with love and obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't often bring this up, but I'm Italian. I know. And one of the consequences of being Italian is that people sometimes try to bring you to the best Italian restaurant. And you go because you're a nice guy and the food is let's just say disappointing, right? And then they ask you, right, isn't this the best place you've ever been? Isn't it so authentic? And you have to say something like, the napkins here are, are very authentic. Great napkins, right? But the truth is that you can tell a good Italian restaurant by what? Right when you walk in, how can you tell? The smell, right? It has to smell like my grandmother's kitchen or it's not legit. A few years back, I'm in this situation. Uh, some friends tell us, some non-Italian friends. We have friends with both, with both groups of people, Italians and non-Italians. And some friends tell us, you have to try this place. And I'm like, where is it? And they're like, it's in this little podunk town in Wisconsin. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. There hasn't been an Italian in this town since Rome ruled America. And uh, don't check that in the history books, right? And so, but my wife has agreed to go without checking with me. And Elizabeth always gets what she wants because she's adorable, right? So we arrive into this little hole in the wall and this dink rural town, and I'm like, this is going to be terrible. What am I going to do? And I walk in, and it's the smell. It's the smell. It smells like grandma, not the bad grandma smell. <laughs> the good grandma smell, right? And suddenly, it's like that scene in Ratatouille. You ever seen Ratatouille, right? When he eats the Ratatouille, he becomes a little kid. I was nine years old, and I'm eating gavadil at my grandma's table, and it's great. The place was fantastic. I had the brajol. If you don't know what brajol is, please don't invite me to an Italian restaurant. And as I'm wondering how this is possible, what's this doing out here, the owner walks out of the kitchen, and I can tell, two words, I can tell, this guy is legit. Why is this in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin? Two words. Witness protection. Thank you. Please don't give away my jokes, Rich. Okay? <laughs> it's true, though. The smell gives away whether or not an Italian place is legit, right? That's why they call it the smell test. In James, we read there's a smell test when it comes to someone's faith. A way to tell if it's real. That we can tell if someone's faith is real by their deeds. Christ followers with authentic faith smell like good deeds. As we come back into our series in the book of James, we remember that James is writing to people in what they call the diaspora. 
Persecution had come on the church in Jerusalem. They'd gotten scattered, and now they're in these new towns. They don't have their family background. They don't have their old job. They don't have their land. And all these people are gathering together, forming new churches in the places where they're going. And this section of James, we're going to pick up in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James is continuing his definition of what a real believer is. Now, in the first part of chapter 2, he implores us. He says, don't be fooled by wealth when it comes to believers. He says, don't show favoritism to the rich because wealth doesn't equal character. In this section, he takes on another way that we can deceive ourselves and be deceived by others. Let's pick it up in chapter 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them. Let me read that again. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? This is an important question, right? James lays out a scenario where someone, it could be us, it could be someone else, says someone says they have faith, faith in Christ. Someone says they have faith in life, faith in Christ, but their life has no good deeds in it. Is that faith by itself enough to save that person? Now, some of us right away are hearing the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Saved by grace through faith. It's a tenet of the church. Works don't save us. Case made. Except that's not the question that James is asking. He isn't asking if it were saved by faith alone. He says what? Here, put it back up. Verse 14. He says, what good is it, our brothers and sisters? Did you catch the key word? If someone claims... If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can that faith save them? By claiming faith, a faith that does not result in deeds, is it possible for a deedless faith to also be a saving faith? Let's listen to his case. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James brings up a common scenario. Uh, Remember, these are people who've been scattered by persecution And they were in a tough position economically. Many of them were living in poverty. And poor people flocked to the churches looking for hope. And so here's the situation. He says, one of the brothers or sisters has no regular source of food and is lacking clothes. Now here's the problem with this scenario. When you hear me tell that story, hey, a brother or sister comes into the church and they don't have enough food and they don't have clothes, who do you imagine yourself to be in that scenario? The person who's already in the church, who's established, or the new poor person coming in? We always imagine ourselves as the people in the church, as the people who have the resources. But I want us to flip it around. Suppose that persecution happened to you. Suppose your house and your family lands, you had to run, otherwise you'd be killed. You had to take your little kids and get on the road. And the job you'd been doing in your town, well, that's gone. It was tied to that town. 
And you had some savings. You had some gold and some silver. But in the process of getting out of town, escaping persecution, you'd lost it all. And when you got to a new place that was safe from persecution, you didn't have any contacts. You don't have any relatives. You don't have any favors owed to you. You don't have any resources. And after a couple of days, what are you? Well, you're hungry. You're cold. The weather's starting to turn, and it's going to get cold at night, and you don't have a place to sleep. There's no uh, shelter system that's available to you. You have no relatives you can go to, no friends you can call on. And then you remember something. You go, oh, there's a church in this town. I'm a Christ follower. And you go to church, and you come in, and you all worship together, right? And you're like, we're worshiping our God of provision, and our God is so good. And you have a little fellowship afterward. And you're talking to someone, and they're like, hey, what's going on with you? And you tell them your story. I've been kicked out. I have no food. This is the last of my clothes. I don't have any money. I have nowhere to go. And they go, man, that sounds rough. And they say to you, you know what? You know what I do when I'm cold? I make sure I sleep somewhere warm. Here's what you should do. You should go find a warm place to sleep and sleep there. You know what I do when I'm hungry? I get a good meal. Get it? You know what you should do? Go get a good meal in you, eat that meal, and then go sleep in a safe, warm place, and you'll feel better. Good luck. God bless you, brother. How much good would that do you? Would it do you any good? It would do you no good at all, right? James says, if you're claiming you have faith in Christ, and yet it doesn't result in any deeds in your life, it's just as good as someone saying, hey, get a warm place to sleep and eat a good meal when you're broke and poor and tired but not being willing to help you in any way. He says, that's what some of your faith is like. It's all talk. It's empty. It's got no actions that go with it. Verse 18. Someone responds to James. He's answering a question. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. And so here's what they're saying. When they say someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, they're treating faith and deeds as if they were gifts of the Spirit. They're making an argument that the gift of works or deeds is given to some, and the gift of faith is given to others. They're treating them like we treat the gift of teaching or helps or encouragement. They're saying, my piece of serving the kingdom is to have faith. And your piece is to do the work. And and this um, this is only half right. Right? When he says, look, some things in the church are like gifts. They're like spiritual gifts. And and we all do different parts and they work together like a body. And so the the opponents of James are saying, that's how faith and deeds are. Some of you have the gift of faith. Some have the gift of deeds. If you're telling me how come you don't have any deeds, I can just say, I don't have the gift of works. I don't have the gift of deeds. I only have the gift of faith. And, and that, that's half right. And I got to tell you something. Half right is usually more dangerous than all wrong. Because half of it sounds right. Yeah, we do have different gifts. And those gifts function together in the body of Christ. And yes, faith is lifted, listed as a gift of the Spirit. But lack of gifting is not a lack of responsibility. 
Jesus, in fact, tells a lot of stories about people without the gift of something who just take whatever they have and offer it, and then he multiplies it. You can think of that little kid who offers his lunch, and then Jesus takes it and feeds 5,000 people. Or you think of that woman who's been suffering for years, and all she can do is reach out and touch Jesus, and then he provides the healing. You can think of those friends of the paralyzed man who can't help him, but what can they do? They, they take him up to the top of the, of, the, of the house and drop him in by the roof where Jesus can get to him. Or he tells the story about that Samaritan who, you know, this half-breed, but he's the one who helps someone who's been hurt. Does that mean we shouldn't try to serve in our area of gifting? Of course we should. We should of course we should serve in our area of gifting. And finding a place we fit is great, but the posture of one who leans in and offers what they have, even when it's, even when it's um, hard for them, even when it's all they have is a little bit, the posture of leaning in and helping, even when it's not your gift, James says that posture is something that shows our faith. I go back to our early days as a church. Some of you remember some of our first leaders here, Charles and Bobby Dresser. Charles was a gifted teacher. Bobby's a wonderful administrator. You know what they did here? Charles picked up trash and Bobby worked in the nursery because they wanted to see the kingdom grow. They offered what they had, even though it was outside of their gifting. That shouldn't be forever, but the posture remains the same. So James, James answers the gifts argument this way. He says, faith and deeds aren't separate gifts at all, but they're two sides of the same coin. Put that same verse back up, that 18. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. He basically says, you can't show faith without deeds. They always go together, every time. But the people who are arguing for only faith, they say, but we believe the right things, James. We believe in one God. Isn't that enough? Here's what James says to that, verse 19. He says, you believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The people who have faith without deeds, say all they need to do is believe the right thing, say the right words, sign the right contract. And James says that those right beliefs or right claims only get you so far. He says, you know how far it gets you to say you believe in one God? It gets you into the company of demons. But the difference between Christ's followers and demons is not what they believe, but how they respond to that belief. Demons believe in one God and oppose him, while Christians believe in one God and serve him. The faith without deeds, people, are obviously causing damage to the church. And we can imagine why, right? Can you imagine a scenario where a bunch of people came to church and all just claimed, they said, okay, the people who have the gift of faith, you just come to church and eat the food and enjoy the stuff and go. And those of you with the gift of deeds, you do all the work. Who would like to have the gift of faith? And who'd like to have the gift of deeds? Right? And if you had the gift of deeds, right, you'd start to get a little frustrated, wouldn't you? But James, I think, is actually more scared the other way. He's actually more scared that people who think they can have faith without deeds are deceiving themselves. Remember his question from the beginning? Can such faith save you? If your faith hasn't moved you to action, if your faith hasn't transformed you, if you haven't done anything differently because of your faith, then you don't have faith at all. 
If you're saying I have faith, but it hasn't changed you, moved you, you've done anything about it, then you don't have faith. Faith always does something. It always does, every time. So if, you're not, if it's not doing anything, it's not faith, it's something else, and you've deceived yourself, and you don't even have salvation. Now, what that faith does can be all kinds of things. And that's not measured by the world. It's measured by God. But if it's done nothing, James warns us, warns me, warns you, warns the churches, and says, if you have a faith that hasn't produced anything, you don't have a faith. It's dead. It's a dead faith, which is no faith at all. Hear this frustration in his voice. Look at verse 20. He says, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Like he's almost like, do I really have to make this argument? Isn't this obvious to you? All right, I'll make the argument, he says. And he tells a story of one of the most famous people in the Bible, Abraham. Let's pick it up in verse 21. He says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. James tells one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. Abraham's the father of the Jewish people, called out of his homeland to Israel. And God promises to build him into a great nation. But when he makes the promise, Abraham doesn't have any kids. And Abraham and his wife are really old. And then God works miraculously, and they have a child, Isaac. And you'd think, wow, this is the answer to the promise. But before Isaac can grow up and have kids of his own, God comes to Abraham and says, I need you to sacrifice your son Isaac. He says, I want you to go on a three-day hike to this mountain and sacrifice Isaac. He's testing Abraham's devotion. Is his devotion to what God can provide or is his devotion to God himself? Abraham obeys God. He believes him. He prepares to sacrifice Isaac. It actually tells us in the book of Hebrews that when he's doing it, he believes that God is going to rise Isaac from the dead. But before he can sacrifice his son, God stops him. It was never God's intention for him to sacrifice Isaac. And instead he provides a ram. Abraham's faith in God wasn't real until he acted on it. We didn't know if he had faith until he was willing to go up the mountain. James says, if you don't hike up the mountain, it ain't faith. James tells us, it ain't faith until you help a brother in need when you don't have much yourself. It ain't faith unless it means you'll help clean up the trash and take care of the babies. It ain't faith unless it has action behind it. We had a moment like this in our early life as a church. We were a couple years old, and uh, this place became available. We were getting kicked out everywhere. We had no place to meet. The guy who owned this place said, I'll sell you this place. Uh, he said, I goes, I'll sell you at a discount, $450,000. I said, that's great. I said, we have 1500 bucks." And he said, okay, we'll make a deal, and we work it out. He says, if you can put down $60,000 as a down payment, you guys can take this place. That's remarkably cheap for a church building, okay? 
And so we had a little group here. We weren't that many people. We were 66 adults at the time. And we had a little gathering out here before we'd finished this space. And we have a meeting. I said, oh, let's ask the Lord, should we buy this place, right? And then we vote. And you know what the vote was? 66 to 0. Let's buy the place. Did we own the place at that time? Nope. Can you own a place just by voting for it? That'd be great, wouldn't it? I'd own lots of stuff, right? I'd walk into Meyer. I own this place. I voted for it earlier. Yes. It was close, but I now own the produce section, right? So we vote 66 to 0, and I said, great. Thank you so much. I'm glad we're all in unity. We need to raise $60,000 in the next three weeks. We had 1500 bucks. The faith wasn't the vote. The faith was the offering. The faith was a bunch of people who didn't know if this church was going to last or not last, saying, we're going to put our money in the pot because we want this to be a place forever for Jesus. I think back to that moment a lot, right? It was a marker place for us as a church. We know these moments, right? We know these moments of what makes it real. There's a lot of talk that goes on out there. There's uh, two engaged couples sitting in the same row back there, which is kind of funny. One's getting married this, this weekend, uh, Rich and Bella, and uh, Josh and Natalie are going in October. And uh, I, it was, I always think it's funny. My wife used to listen to Dr. Laura. Anybody ever listened to Dr. Laura back in the day on the radio? No one. I'm glad this connect. Um, and people would call in, and they'd say, we're engaged. And Dr. Laura would say, do you have a ring? And do you have a date? And they'd say, no, we don't have a ring. We haven't said it yet, but we're engaged. She's like, you're not engaged. If you're engaged, you have a ring, you have a date. It ain't engaged until you have a ring and a date. He goes, stop calling that guy your fiancé. He's just some fella, right? James says, it ain't faith until it has action. It ain't faith until it moves you. It ain't faith until it grows you and changes you and causes you to act. And he's got one more story for us. It's probably the most challenging one. It's the story of Rahab. Pick it up in verse 25 of James 2. He says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Keep going. That's the end? As, there's a verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now we're going to cover the story of Rahab in detail. I'm going to preach the book of Joshua in... Uh, August this year. But here's the, here's the short version, right? Rahab is a prostitute. She lives in a place called Jericho. She's an unlikely hero. And when Israel sends spies in the city to see if they can take the city, she finds them, and she, but, and she could reveal them to the authorities and, and probably get some social standing. But she doesn't. She hides the spies in her house. The people who are attacking her city, she hides them in her house. And then she redirects the people coming in. And you're like, what are you doing, Rahab? If she gets caught, she's dead. Why would she ever do that? And the spies actually have this conversation with her. Like, what are you doing, Rahab? And Rahab says this thing. She goes, I've heard about God. I heard about the God of Israel. And I know he's the one true God. And I'm willing to bet my life on it. I'm willing to go against my people and my own city to be on God's side of things. I don't even know the whole story. I just know I want to be with the God of Israel because I know his side is the right side. And she bets 
for life. And James tells us if you want a definition of faith, take Rahab. Because it ain't faith unless your life is on the line. Look, here's what's challenging about this. The examples given by James are not small examples. These aren't stories of people praying for a parking spot. The faith he's talking about is a faith that defies materialism and chooses generosity. It's a faith that's willing to sacrifice its own legacy and line. A faith that bets its own life. The faith we see described in James, the saving faith, is not a safe faith. It's a dangerous faith. It's a faith that leads us to defy culture and requires courage. It stretches boundaries. Let me ask you the hard question. Has your faith done that? Does your faith move you to bold action? Are you living any differently as a Christ follower than if you were just an ordinary, decent person? Let me ask you that again. Are you living any differently as a Christ follower than if you were just an ordinary, decent person? Here's what I think James is hoping when he writes this letter, and I'm guessing a little bit here. I'm guessing that people read this letter and ask this question. Has my faith done anything? Do my actions show a real faith? Or am I just someone who's claiming faith and it doesn't go anywhere? Here's what I'd like us to do. I want you to take a couple minutes. If you're watching at home, do this at home. You can put it on a memo on your phone or you can make a little, if you have pen and paper. And I want you to take a couple minutes and just write down, here's what I do because I'm a Christian. Here's what my faith is producing in my life. You're not going to have to read it to anybody or show it to anyone. This is just between you and the Lord. But I really encourage you to actually do this. Take a couple minutes and write down, here's what I do because I'm a Christian. Here's what my faith is producing in my life. Take two minutes and then I got a word for you.
How'd that go? I think James writes this to us because his great fear is that many of us are living less than a faith-filled life. That we have deceived ourselves. That we said some words, we go to a place, and we call that Christianity. But there's no real faith that is developing action in us. I think it's a gift to take a moment and reflect on that. I want you to consider James's categories that he brings up. And here's what I've seen in my years of doing this and trying to walk with Jesus. He gives us three categories that are interesting, right? The first one he talks about is generosity, about what do you do with people in need. I think everyone who's a Christ follower, everyone I know who's walked with Jesus a long time, has a list of generosity stories, has a list of times that God has moved them to give when they didn't make sense for them and trust him financially when it didn't make sense for them. I think Christ followers, as, as a mark of being a Christ follower, are generous. His second category, the one about Abraham and Isaac, well, that's sacrifice, isn't it? People I know, authentic Christ followers, walk with him for years, will have stories of sacrifice. God calls us to lay down things that are close to us so that we can be close to him. We are idolaters by nature. We cling on to the things that God provides and worship them instead of God. We worship the things our culture idolizes and not God. And I think every Christ follower at some point has been called to sacrifice. It's a mark of a Christ follower. Generosity, sacrifice, and then finally we come to Rahab, right? Every one of us has been called to declare allegiance to Jesus when it goes against the grain. I think every Christ follower I've known long, a long time has been called to declare allegiance to Jesus when it goes against the grain in a way that makes us uncomfortable. We had two young girls get baptized today. I don't think it's easy for 13-year-old girls to declare their faith in Christ in, the, in our culture. I think that's a, a mark of allegiance to Jesus. I don't think it's normal for us to declare allegiance to Christ in secular workplaces or on your softball team or uh, in your circles. I think every Christ follower has that mark of I declared allegiance to Jesus when it went against the grain. James tells us this because he wants us to be close to Jesus. Maybe you looked at that list and you're like, and all you have are, man, thank you, Jesus, for using me in these ways. Praise God for that. Be affirmed that God has moved you and changed you. If you're looking at a list of generous things and things you've sacrificed, be affirmed that those are worthwhile decisions that God's going to honor. And I'm sure you probably look at that list and you feel blessed. I'm blessed I got to give. I'm blessed I got to sacrifice. I'm blessed I declared allegiance to him. But maybe you looked at your list and you're like, man, that, my list doesn't show anything. Well, the point of this is not to shame you. It's an invitation. James says, don't be deceived then. If it hasn't produced anything, it's not a real faith. But that time is still right now that you can trust in Christ. That real faith is still available to you. The real Messiah who will change you, who will grow you, who will produce good deeds in you, that Messiah is still available to you. Reject the false Messiah, the comfortable Messiah, and pick up the cross of Jesus and you'll see it. 
Let it be true of us, New Hope. That we don't settle for some surface faith, some claims of faith that do not turn into action. But let us be a place of practitioners of the gospel who live out of that real relationship with Christ, a real faith that produces good deeds that bless our town, our church, our world, those around us. Let that be true of us. Let me pray that for us. Father God, we do not want a shallow, empty, dead faith that produces nothing. Father, I pray, if we discover ourselves deedless in this moment, let it not shame us, but convict us toward an authentic faith that moves and changes and grows us. And Lord, let us be a place full of practitioners of the gospel of Jesus Christ who live in such a way that others want to know him. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you that you speak hard words to us that give life. And we, uh, I pray that we'd respond to them with love and obedience today. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.